Together we were considering the doctrinal beliefs of two men. One's name was Westcott and the other's name was Hort. And these unsaved men are responsible for giving you origins, corrupt Alexandrian manuscripts in the form of or under the guise of the Revised Version, the English Revised Version, published in 1881 on the other side of the water. And uh, the work of Westcott and Hort has served as the, uh, as the foundation for all of the uh, modern translations since that time. I mentioned to you, and we quoted from their uh, correspondence and their writings, uh, their uh, denial of the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, their denial of a literal hell, uh, their denial of salvation by grace through faith, uh, we pointed out their belief in baptismal regeneration. Then most uh, striking of all, we saw that uh, toward the close of their lives, these men uh, joined a society uh, for the pursuit of uh, ghosts and goblins and uh, fairies, and uh, they became uh, participants in and partakers of occult studies and occult practices. And these are the men that gave... Uh, to the world, the revised version, and then uh, its uh, byproducts, the American Standard Version, and then the New American Standard Version, and the NIV. And these, uh, these occultists uh, are not to be trusted because uh, of their uh, denial of the, the fundamental basic truths of New Testament Christianity. But it's these two men who, who brought the, uh, the heretical work of origin back into vogue and uh, finished off the work begun by uh, Newman in corrupting the churches and the schools and seminaries and churches in England and eventually in the United States. The NIV, the New American Standard, the New English Bible, the New Revised Standard, are not new at all. They are merely a, a repeat or a, a reintroduction of uh, the philosophies of Plato and Clement and Origen. Uh, they are based upon the Egyptian papyri and Eusebius's Aleph and B manuscripts. The Greek manuscripts Aleph and B, that's Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, as you recall, were produced under the authority of Constantine in Rome, and they were uh, adopted by Westcott and Hort, who were just two members of a, of a broad-based committee that met together under the auspices of revising or updating the King James Version. And these two men so took control of that committee that they they ended up replacing the King James Bible with a uh, translation based upon these two uh, corrupt texts. Vaticanus dedicate, uh, designated B. That's the designation for Vaticanus. And Sidiaticus dedic, uh, designated by Aleph. Those two manuscripts are the foundation. Uh, the test, uh, text of Westcott and Hort is practically the text of Aleph and B. 
Westcott and Hort's introduction to the New Testament in the original Greek, which is a great title for a book, seeing as nobody had the original Greek. So you know they're uh, liars right off the bat. They said, quote, readings of Aleph and B should be accepted as the true readings. They stand far above all documents, are very pure, excellent, and enjoyed singular immunity from corruption. Many scholars today disagree with Westcott and Hort because they've actually taken the time to consider and study the poor character of these manuscripts. Uh, Vice President at one time of uh, Moody Institute, Alfred Martin, calls Aleph and B manuscripts, quote, depraved. John Burgeon, who was a contemporary of Westcott and Hort and wrote everything you need to know about modern Bibles back in the 1880s and 1890s. If you've got Burgeon's work, you don't need anything else. He, he thoroughly uh, won the argument and carried the day. Uh, he says, quote, I have convinced myself by laborious collation that they are the most corrupt of all. They are the depositories of the largest amount of fabricated and intentional perversions of truth which are discoverable in any copies of the Word. They exhibit a fabricated text and are shamefully mutilated. Now, since on occasion the editors of the new versions uh, depart from the readings of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, uh, they too comment on the errors inherent in these manuscripts. Hort admits, quote, uh, they reached by no means a high standard of accuracy. Bruce Metzger, co-author of a recent Greek text, observed, quote, non-Byzantine readings, that's those that don't agree with the, the Syrian manuscripts of the Receptus. Uh, for example, Codex Vaticanus can be explained from the tendency of scribes to assimilate and simplify the text. That's a nice way of saying they just rewrote it. Uh, E.W. Kenyon, noted uh, textbook author on the subject, says that Vaticanus and Sidiaticus are disfigured. Gordon Fee says they were copied from an altered papyrus and brings uh, readers up to date, reveals the dilemma in which scholars find themselves today. He says, quote, The recensional altered nature of Vaticanus has become a byword in New Testament textual criticism. The recent text critical handbooks and New Testament introductions, as well as articles on trends and on text types, are almost unanimous in their concurrence with Kenyon's conclusion that the Egyptian text is now generally regarded as a text produced in Alexandria under editorial care, hence our dilemma. For as long as our critical text nestles and the uh, United Bible Society Greek text, etc., continue to look much like a text that is generally acknowledged to have been edited. Our dilemma seems to be that we know too much to believe them. Now, isn't it amazing? These men take a look at, at Vaticanus and take a look at the Sinaiticus manuscripts, B and Aleph, and they say they've been edited, they've been rewritten, there are passages that have been erased and copied over in some places as many as 16 times. Somebody has blotted out something in that text and written something different over the top of it. And yet, the kiddies continue to go off to Bible school and hear that the King James Bible is inferior. 
and the new versions are superior because they're based upon more recent discoveries in textual and manuscript evidence. Yeah, but the more recent discoveries are, are garbage. Um, lest somebody tell you the NIV and New American Standard were translated uh, without the text of Westcott and Hort, Fee says this, quote, The dilemma of contemporary New Testament textual criticism relates directly to the labors of Westcott and Hort. On one hand, there has been an open disavowal. One might call it a debunking of Westcott and Hort's methodology and textual theory, while at the same time, critical texts issued since Westcott and Hort have continued to follow their lead. In fact, the recent United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, which was produced by so-called eclectic method, has moved even closer to Westcott and Hort than subsequent critical issues. He said, we keep coming up with something, we call it new, call it a new work, call it a new text, call it a, a closer to the truth. And he says, all they're doing is just, just rewriting Westcott and Hort over and over again. Now, Edwin Palmer, who is executive secretary of the NIV committee and also wrote a book uh, on the uh, setting forth the doctrines of five-point Calvinism, so we know uh, he didn't have his... Uh, doctrine straight, said, quote, Aleph and B are more reliable and accurate than the King James materials. Robert Youngblood, NIV Translation Committee, says, quote, the readings found in Vaticanus, that's Vatican, <laughs> and Seniaticus of the 4th century A.D. are to be preferred. J.B. Phillips, author of the Forward of the New American Standard Bible, author of the Interlinear Greek-English New Testament, as well as numerous other new translations, he wrote his own, says, quote, it is the most reliable Greek text. Lewis Foster, a member of the New King James Committee and the NIV Committee. How about that? Well, we wouldn't use the NIV. We use the New King James. Yeah, but the same guy translated both of them. Now, why would you translate two and have them come out different unless you're just doing it to make money? I mean, let's be honest about it. Unless you want to come out and say, you know, I worked on the NIV, but it's a bunch of junk. So now we're going to do the new King James and maybe we'll get it right this time. But if you're putting both of them out there and saying they're both good, then something's, something's messed up. Anyway, he said um, uh, the most highly valued manuscripts and the most dependable are Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Now, I'm only reading you that because I want you to understand that these men openly state their faith and their confidence in the work of origin out of Alexandria, Egypt, which we've established to be a perversion of God's truth. Um, Vaticanus. Let's take a look at these. This is, this, is the, uh, this is the foundation of the RV. It's the foundation of the NIV. It's the foundation of the New American Standard Version. Vaticanus, as in... Vatican. That's the Roman text. The use of recent technology, such as a videocon camera, which creates a digital form of faint writing, recording it on a magnetic tape and reproducing it by an electro-optical process, reveals that Vaticanus has been altered by at least two hands, one being as late as the 12th century, 
Metzger admits a few passages therefore remain to show the original appearance of the first hand. The corrector omitted things he believed to be incorrect. So, whatever you've got in Vaticanus, it's been altered at least twice from what it first said. Uh, Vaticanus agrees with the Receptus only 50% of the time. It differs from the majority Greek text in 8,000 places. This amounts to about one change per verse. It omits several thousand key words from the Gospels, many of them the names Lord, Christ, Jesus, and God. It omits nearly 1,000 complete sentences and 500 clauses. It adds 500 words that did not exist previously. Uh, nearly 2,000 words are modified. It transposes word order in about 2,000 places. It has 600 readings that do not occur in any other manuscript. So what you got is uh, something been altered nearly beyond recognition. Then there's the Sinai manuscript, Sinaiticus. Uh, there are 9,000 changes in this text from the, uh, from the Syrian text of Antioch. It omits 4,000 words from the Gospels, adds 1,000, repositions 2,000, alters another 1,000, has 1,500 readings that appear in no other manuscript. It affects nearly 3,000 words. It has uh, uh, the end of Mark is, is removed, the end of John is removed, um, 39 words from John 19, 20 words from John 20, 19 words from Mark 1, uh, John 5, 4, Matthew 16, 2 and 3, Romans 16, 24, Mark 16, 9 to 20, 1 John 5, 7, Acts 8, 37. They're all gone. It has no Exodus, no Joshua, no Samuel, no Kings, no Hosea, no Amos, no Micah, no Ezekiel, no Daniel, no Judges. Uh, 19 out of 34 words or, uh, verses are changed in Luke 8. 60 words are changed in Matthew 1. And instead of those Bible books that, that were omitted... It has Bell and the Dragon, Tobit, Judith, Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. Bruce Metzger says, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus do not agree. They disagree with one another 8,000 times. Uh, they disagree with each other one dozen times per page. Uh, they disagree 70% of the time, and in almost every verse of the Gospels, with the majority text. Now, when these two men, Westcott and Hort, who believed there was no hell, no blood atonement of Jesus Christ, who believed in contacting the spirits of the dead in seances and in occult meetings, when those men took these two corrupt manuscripts and produced them as the revised version God raised up a man named Dean Bergen to expose their work for the corruption that it was. And in addition to exposing the corruption of their work, he exposed the corrupt nature of their, of their heart. That society that they were involved in, in pursuit of occult studies, uh, put them in league with um, Halina, Petrovna, 
Blavatsky. Anybody ever heard of Madame Blavatsky? This woman was born Helena von Hahn in the Ukraine. She was a psychic or claimed to be. She was known as one to her disciples. She claimed that as a child she had been given divine visions and had experienced magical gifts and was able to move objects by psychokinesis. Now, the great thing about claiming to have visions and revelations of God when you're a child is nobody can possibly disprove that. You just say it happened and either somebody believes you or they don't. Westcott and Hort believed her. At 17, she was married to a 40-year-old general named uh, Nikifor Blavatsky, but left him after three months. Went to Constantinople. She retained the noble name. Later in her life, she claimed that for the next few years, she visited every exotic place known and was initiated into mystical orders and finally settled in Tibet, where she contacted the Mahatmas, uh, adepts who lived in caves, and taught her the mysteries she was to subsequently teach. All these tales are highly doubtful. There's no evidence she ever visited any of these places. What is known to be true is that she went from being a piano teacher to a circus bareback rider to a spirit medium. She eventually was employed by the spirit medium Daniel Douglas Holm as an assistant where she doubtless learned some of the tricks of the trade. At age 40, while operating as a spirit medium in carnivals in Cairo, she started the Spiritist Society. Great commotion arose when a long cotton glove stuffed with cotton was discovered in the seance room. Uh, she wisely departed hastily for Paris. She had this little glove stuffed full of cotton floating from a string in the tent, and she'd have everybody close their eyes, and, and she'd say, uh, you know, e pluribus unum, fee fi fo fum, and, and the room would be filling with incense, and then she would say, ah, look! And through the smoke, this little... Uh, you know, Casper the friendly ghost looking thing would be floating up there. But one day somebody let the, let the tent flap open and the incense blew away and a little light shone in. And lo and behold, it wasn't a ghost at all. It was a glove. So she went to Paris. Two years later in 1873, she moved to the United States, began performing seances for wealthy patrons there. In 1875, in partnership with Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, a lawyer and writer, uh, who dealt with spiritualistic claims, she founded the Theosophical Society. Theosophy became the passion and profession of the woman who insisted upon being addressed as Madam. She claimed to bring messages from two masters or Mahatmas named Kuthumi <laughs> and Morya. These messages were often in the form of small bits of paper that floated down from the ceiling above her. She attracted many prominent persons to the movement, by her performance of these effective diversions. In India, she flourished as a cult figure for several years until a housekeeper, who had formerly worked as a magician's assistant, exposed the tricks by which Blavatsky had been fooling her followers. She blustered a great deal and threatened to sue, but instead chose to leave India and never went back. She went to England, and in the 1880s, established the Theosophical Society, and uh, Westcott and Hort became interested. Her tricks were exposed by the Society for Psychical Research, which certain, when certain pieces of conjuring equipment were shown to be the means by which she produced the written messages for her Mahatmas. 
Uh, it was also revealed that she had deceived a disciple by hiring an actor wearing a dummy bearded head and flowing costume to impersonate the spirit of Mahatma Kutumi. <laughs> the exposure did little to shake the belief of the faithful in England. Uh, you know, people that follow these, uh, these kind of people always believe that people who expose them are some sort of evil creatures. So, that's who Westcott and Hort was, uh, were tied with. And let me give you one more of their uh, line and lineage before we move on to things uh, more profitable. If you go off to um, Bible school today, good one, bad one, conservative or liberal, the first time they say in the Greek... You ought to just pack your books and go home for two reasons. First of all, there is no such thing as the Greek. There are at last count approximately 220 Greek New Testaments, and none of them agree. So when somebody says in the Greek, uh, that's like uh, that's like saying in the in the library. Say which Greek? Say so, well the Greek. What do you mean the Greek? Well the original Greek. Oh, you have the original Greek. And at that point he'll he won't know what you're talking about. He said no in my Greek New Testament. Which one? Nestles. Well, which of the fifty some editions of Nestles do you have? And again, he won't know what you're talking about. He's just reciting what he heard in school. But if you go home tonight and ask Daddy, or if you call your uh, favorite Greek-loving preacher, and ask him what he means by the Greek, nine times out of ten, he will be making reference to Kittle's uh, Greek Dictionary, or Dictionary of the Greek New Testament. And ask him if he knows... What else Kittle produced? Mr. Kittle is an interesting character. You need to know a little something about him. Gerard Kittle's name is a household word among New Testament Greek scholars. It would seem the chasm between a Satanist and a Bible student would be monumental. Kittle edited the ten-volume standard reference work used in New Testament Greek word studies, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The NIV translators relied on, its, relied on its judgments when selecting words, as do all modern translators. When a pastor or media preacher elaborates with reference to the Greek, it is virtually certain he is deciding a judgment about the correct meaning or choice of a word from Kittle's Dictionary, or in a bridge compendium which has adopted its citations. Editor's remark regarding this ten-volume set, It is the standard. This set is a necessity for the serious Greek student. It is the best New Testament dictionary ever completed. Every serious Greek student dreams of owning a set. I've been having dreams and nightmares for 46 years. I've never dreamed of owning a set of Kittle's uh, Greek dictionary. Uh, the elder Kittle, Rudolph, his feet were firmly planted in 19th century liberal academia. The younger Kittle was even more easily swept along with the prevailing winds. 
which in 1918 meant irrationalism, mysticism, and anti-Semitism. The New King James Version and all new versions have abandoned the traditional Old Testament Hebrew text and follow Rudolf Kittel's, that's, that's this fellow's daddy, Rudolf Kittel's 1937 corruption, Biblica Hebraica, which uh, follows the Leningrad manuscript. What was the, the source of the bizarre notions that swept Germany in the 1930s and resulted in Hitler's concentration camps and near extermination of the Jews of Europe? Well, Kittel's mysticism and Hitler's occultism were partners. They were at the root of the anti-Semitism. The U.S. Army discovered Hitler's library of personally marked occult books and noted that he kept a copy of Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine by his bedside. Its fables of the new fifth root race of divine Aryans battling the inferior old Jewish race, coupled with its call for the open worship of Lucifer over Jehovah, who Blavatsky identifies as Satan, explains this monstrous phenomenon. Without awareness of the contents of Hitler's bedside reading, his actions would remain a strange mystery. Blavatsky's book was also used by the mystical societies of Germany after World War I, and Kittel was a member of this society. Blavatsky's Theosophical Society was at one time called the Aryan Theosophical Society. Her anti-Semitic pamphlet and quotes similar to the following provided fuel for the crematoriums. Uh, Hitler read in, in her book, The Secret Doctrine, quote, The Semites, the sacred spark is missing, and it is they who are the only inferior race on the globe. Now happily owing to the wise adjustment of nature, whichever works in that direction, fast dying out. Here again one perceives the immense chasm between Aryan and Semitic religious thought, the two opposite poles, sincerity and concealment. Adolf Hitler got his anti-Jewish notions from the writings of Madame Blavatsky. Uh, Hitler uh, got his initial initiation into the secret doctrine. Uh, this was followed by a final initiation by occultist Dietrich Eckhart, who wrote, Follow Hitler, he will dance, but it is I who will call the tune. I have initiated him into the secret doctrine, which was the work of Blavatsky. Hitler's mind comp was dedicated to Dietrich Eckhart, who was a disciple of Blavatsky. And the book contained much anti-Semitism. His master race theory was taken directly from Blavatsky's root race writings. As early as 1909, Hitler joined the anti-Semitic Union. His speeches of 1919 and 1920 were peppered with this poison. And finally, on January 30, 1939, he told the world, quote, In a new world, the Jewish race in Europe will be destroyed. Voices told Hitler before 1920, that he had been selected by God to be Germany's Messiah, saving the nation from the claws of international Jewry. Erickson notes, quote, Kittel saw God's hand in the elevation of Hitler to power. 
Kittel was put on trial for war crimes at Nuremberg because it was Kittel, this man, it was Kittel who wrote the anti-Semitic literature that was distributed by the Nazi party and used to indoctrinate the German people in their hatred for the Jews. When a man says in the Greek and he goes to Kittel's Greek New Testament, he's going to the work of a man who was involved in Satanism and was working to help further the extermination of the Hebrew people from the face of the earth. Now, you're telling me you're going to trust that man? With Hitler's totalitarian regime came the Nazi takeover of the church. In Germany, under the name uh, Dusch Christian, uh, Kittel, unlike theologians Barth and Bonhoeffer, urged agreement with the state, and Fuhrer was obedience toward the law of God. That's what Kittel said about Hitler. To obey Hitler is to obey the law of God. Theologian Martin Buber, uh, B-U-B-E-R, responded publicly that he was not surprised to see Kittle acting as Pied Piper for the Fuhrer. Quote, Theologians who stressed gospel tended to be immune to Hitler's claims. Kittle's work cannot be seen as anything but a satanic distortion of Christianity. End of quote. Foreshadowing the final false prophet, Kittle uh, promoted a new Bible version for Hitler's new church, to replace Luther's traditional German Bible. Uh, Luther's Bible had been based on the majority text. It was the, the authorized version of the German people. Luther's Bible was 400 years old during Hitler's generation. Hitler, uh, Kittle said it was archaic and needed to be replaced. In 1933, Kittle joined the Nazi party and his mystical maze hit a turning point. That same year, he began work on the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, a work he hoped would give theology a more secure superstructure or substructure. Now, two things happened in 1933. Hitler joined, or Kittel joined the Nazi party to help Hitler exterminate the Jews, and he began work on his Greek dictionary. Now, I want you just tomorrow, if you want to just have some fun, just call pastors in your town and ask them if they refer to the Greek. If they say yes, ask them if they, if they use Kittle. And if they say yes, ask them if they know if, uh, what uh, Kittle's political beliefs and leanings were. You won't find one if you call all week. Has any idea what they're involved in. One secular historian notes, and I quote, the potential trouble suddenly became concrete in 1933. Ego involvement must have played a role in Kittle's career after 1933. After 33, Kittle's work changed in tone. Before 1933, Kittle defended Judaism. Afterward, he attacked it. He produced a body of work between 1933 and 1944 filled with hatred and slander toward Jews. The bulk of Kittle's research between 1933 and 1945 was devoted to a rigorous and harsh anti-Jewish stance. It corresponded to the worst of Nazi propaganda. 
That's the same time during which he's producing his ten-volume lexicon or, or dictionary of the Greek New Testament. And when the NIV translators wanted to know what to do with the word, they didn't go to God, they went to Kittle. Now, isn't that amazing? So you got a, you got confidence in a Greek text put together by men who practice the occult and seances and witchcraft. They're referring to a Greek text, uh, dictionary or lexicon put out by a man that promoted the Nazi party and the extermination of the Jews. And sitting on the translating committee was a lesbian and a homosexual. If you spent any money on an NIV, you just ought to take double that money and give it to missions and tell God you're sorry, you wish you could give more. Praise the Lord. 1933, Kittle wrote a book and gave speeches entitled uh, uh, Die, D-I-E, Judenfrage. The first edition states, quote, We must not allow ourselves to be crippled because the whole world screams at us of barbarism. How the German folk regulates its own cultural affairs does not concern anyone else in the world. Between 33 and 44, as Kittle was cranking out volume after volume of the lengthy theological dictionary, he was also taking a leadership role in the extermination of the Jews. He worked for a Nazi organization and publication that uh, churned out anti-Semitic propaganda. Rudolf Hess, one of the earliest members of the occult society, uh, Thule and Hitler's right-hand man, attended the opening ceremonies, which were followed by newspaper headlines pronouncing the organization as, quote, the scientific weapon in the Nazi fight against the Jews. Kittle was the most frequent contributor to this journal. Of the eight volumes published of this anti-Semitic publication, Kittle was involved in six of them. The last was cut short by the end of the war and Kittle's imprisonment for war crimes. The same fate fell to his closing work on his theological dictionary. Ask your professor at college why the last volume of Kittle's dictionary wasn't finished. And see if he knows it's because the guy was locked up for war crimes at Nuremberg. Interesting, isn't it? Joseph Goebbels, minister of propaganda and enlightenment, believed Hitler was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Goebbels and his SS began the first mass murder of German Jewry on, on November 9 and 10, 1938. In 1939, Kittle made a speech and gave tribute to Hitler, calling him, quote, the saving force which stemmed the tide of Jewish infiltration, end of quote. Knowledge of the killings was widespread within Germany. As early as 1942, the London Times reported the mass murder of the Jews. Swedish diplomat Baron von Otter publicly reported mass gassings. The BBC reported the massacre by AM and shortwave radio. They all knew what was going on. The Abandonment of the Jews, I've got that in my library. It's a great book. We knew what was going on at least as early as uh, 42, maybe earlier. Even with such clear awareness of what was going on, Kittle continued to write for the Fuhrer. In 1943, Goebbels asked Kittle to write for his uh, anti-Jewish action, a publication laced with Goebbels' astrological predictions about a German victory in the war. <laughs> Kittle admitted knowing about Jewish murders and wrote of his support of Adolf Hitler's actions. Quote, Today many harsh things do occur and must occur. It was not despotic brutality or barbarism, for the Fuhrer, in his radical resolve, 
to place the Jewish problem on a wholly new foundation, the radical suppression carried out by National Socialism is not, as almost the entire world maintains, an unheard of cruelty against the Jews. End of quote. What was he referring to? Mass murder. In 1944, Kittel was lecturing at the University of Vienna, speaking of the depraved Jews who were the cause of the fall of the Roman Empire. His writings showed attempts to rationalize the murder of the Jews. He writes, full freedom to murder, just as you should smash the brains of even the best snake. This is the justification of the most anti-Jewish acts. Just amazing. Just amazing. All right. Let's turn the Bible to 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. Brother Steve was asking me at lunch today, very honest question from a sincere young Christian. He just wanted to know why preachers don't make this information available to their people. And the answer, quite simply, is they don't know it. Why do they not know it? Because a sincere young man who loved God, they went off and got an education from men who were once sincere young men who loved God. Who got their education from men who were once sincere young men who loved God. Who got their education from satanic devils who were out to destroy the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not one of these guys that picks up my pen and writes books and calls everybody with a new Bible a devil and a God-hater and a reprobate and all that, because I know better. I know most of these fellows are just, they're just good men and good women who just paid a lot of money to get deceived. And they're going to spend the rest of their life deceiving others, and they don't even know it. And unfortunately, for four years... They were taught loyalty to a school. And that devotion to that school renders them incapable of stepping back and examining what they were taught. You see, when I tell you the NIV is corrupt and I show you it's corrupt, you say, well, praise the Lord, thanks for the information. When I tell somebody else, I'm not, they don't hear the NIV is corrupt, they hear me ridiculing dear Dr. So-and-so who devoted four years of his life to helping them become a missionary or a pastor, and who helped pay their tuition, who went to see them when they had a fever, who took them to the doctor when they were feeling bad, whose wife cooked them meals, who slipped them $20 in the cafeteria one day when he knew they were short on gas money. How dare you say such a good, godly man was involved in Satanism and the occult? Now, come on, that's what you're up against. And that's why you can't charge in there calling names and acting like a heathen. Because you're just insulting good people who love the Lord and are born again and try and do the best they can for Jesus who just don't know any better and they're never going to know any better if you don't act like a Christian toward them. Because one thing they know, that guy with the NIV was a lot more Christ-like toward me than you are with your King James. I'm just being honest. Now, the Bible says in verse number uh, 5 of 2 Timothy 3, 
We are to turn away from men who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. What a perfect description of Westcott, a Bible scholar who denied the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. What a perfect description of Hort, who was a Bible scholar, but denied the deity and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. What a marvelous description of Kittle, a Bible scholar, who denied the great truth that runs from Genesis chapter 12 to the last chapter of Revelation that God chose the Hebrew people for His own. And what do they do? If you don't turn away from them, they will creep in. They will lead captive. They will, they will, verse 7, introduce you to a world of learning that never brings you to the knowledge of the truth. Now let's, let's re- refresh our memory. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. When you've wandered through 25 translations and 5,000 manuscripts and 10 volumes of a Greek uh, dictionary and you still haven't found Jesus Christ, what have you accomplished but filling your brains with nonsense? Now, by contrast with these men who are ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth, Look in verse number 14 of the same chapter. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, look, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Somebody found Jesus Christ, somebody didn't find Him. The one that found him, found him by faith in the Holy Scriptures. The one that didn't find him was all wrapped up in pursuing knowledge and learning. Now, it's not wrong to learn, but when you get done learning, you don't know Jesus. You're in a world of trouble. Now, let's think about what was said here. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, finest Christian ever lived. I've read, I've read more books in my life than I should have read. You'll never read anything like those letters of Paul. There's nothing in the world to compare with the things that man wrote. You know what he said? He said, what you really need to know, a child could learn it from his grandmother. What you really need to get a hold on, a child could learn it from his mom. Isn't that right? He said, Timothy, whatever you do, don't abandon truth that could be learned, understood, and embraced by a child. It can't be that complicated. You're told to turn away from anyone who would turn you away from a gospel or a theology or a system of truth that these girls can't comprehend. That these boys can't find out in a Sunday school class. Look in your chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
This know also, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Verse 4, Traitors, heady, high-minded. Oh, it sounds so impressive to say, I have mastered the Hebrew and the Greek. I have studied the lexicons. I have examined the commentaries. I have perused the volumes and, 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 and read the translations. And I have come to the conclusion that we just don't know what the original really said. Whoop-de-doo for you. You spent all that time and all that money and all that effort and came out a dummy. And a seven-year-old boy sitting back there in the back. God bless these visitors coming in. That, that, that boy sitting by his daddy with his daddy's arm around him. That daddy can say, son, who was Jesus? He was the virgin-born son of God, daddy. What did Jesus do for you, son? He died on the cross and rose from the dead. Well, what does that give you, son? Gives me eternal life, daddy. Hey! A child can get that from the Holy Scriptures. And anything any more complicated than that was not God's intention. Secondly, look in verse 14 again, or or 13. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What could be more deceitful? than giving a born-again young man, a born-again young woman in a, in a Christian Bible school as their final authority, a reference work put out by a man who did Satan's bidding in the destruction of the Hebrew people. What could be more deceptive than that? But the Bible says, continue, but continue thou in things which thou hast learned, hast been assured of, knowing whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures... Which ever make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy's daddy was a Greek. Uh, from what we've seen in Acts, it's doubtful he was even a born-again man. Timothy's mother was a believer. Timothy's grandmother was a believer. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that this, this humble woman and grandmother raising this little boy in a home with a, with a Greek daddy who's probably an unbeliever, do you believe that in that home was carefully hidden in a, in a clay pot the original manuscript of Isaiah 53? I doubt it. The original manuscript of Psalm 22 My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a blessing that Eunice and Lois had that manuscript. I don't believe that for a minute. The Holy Spirit of God had the Apostle Paul write in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that Timothy's grandmother had the Holy Scriptures. She did not have the originals. She probably didn't even have a near copy of the originals. It had been hundreds, perhaps thousands of years since the original writings of those manuscripts had been penned. And sitting there in that humble little home was a grandmother and a mother unrolling a little scroll and reading about the Messiah from something that the Holy Spirit called the Holy Scripture. 
You know what, you know what Paul believed because God told him it was so? That what Timothy's grandma had was just as holy as what God gave to Joshua a thousand years earlier. It was just as holy as what he told Jeremiah to write down. How about that? Now, who are these guys telling me, well, all we've got is copies and all we've got is, you know, and, and translators and copyists there. Hey, if God could get it from Moses to Lois, He can get it from Lois to me. And I can sit my son down in my lap, and I can sit my little girl down in my lap, and I can say, this is the Holy Bible. And if you'll believe it, God will save your soul. Daddy, what does the Greek say? Are you kidding me? Daddy, what Israel? Uh, Have you looked that up in the Hebrew? Then my wife says, well, yes, dear, you know, that might not be in the best manuscripts. Somehow I just see Eunice sitting in that chair, rocking Timothy in the evening and saying, Son, let me tell you what God said to my forefathers hundreds of years ago. Ah, son. God said that unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And they're going to call His name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Oh, Timothy's coming our day. And he died on a cross and rose from the dead just like, just like the Scriptures said He would. You know what the Bible said? You better get away from anybody that tells you it's not that simple. It's that simple. They're holy scriptures in verse 15. Verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What did Mr. Westcott do with that? What did Mr. Hort do with that? What did Mr. Palmer do with that? What did the NIV committee do with that great truth? Well, I can tell you. The Revised Standard Version says this. Look look carefully at your Bible. All Scripture say the word. Uh, I believe last time I checked, that's present tense. Kenneth Taylor's Living Bible. The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God. Was? Too bad. Too bad. I've got a Bible that says is. The New International Version. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching. That's close. Close. Now, I believe with all my heart that the devil's up to something. 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember that word this morning, we're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That word rebuke was defined as being to speak with anger against that which is wrong. It angers me. It angers me. People get up this morning. God stirred in their heart a little bit. They got dressed and went to church. And for that effort, they didn't hear the truth. And the reason they didn't hear the truth because the man in the pulpit packed his bags and went off and entrusted himself for four years to being trained to stand in that pulpit. And he was not taught the truth. He was talked out of faith in the truth. What a sad thing. What a sad thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 says, Would to God you could bear with me a little of my folly and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, now watch, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's supposed to be simple. If it's not simple, it's satanic. God want every man to be, every man to be saved? Then, how, then why would you have to run an obstacle course to get to the truth about salvation? Why wouldn't he just put it right there in front of your face where you could get it in, a, in ten minutes? It'd be that simple. Paul said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid somebody's going to come along and beguile you, turn you away from your simple, childlike confidence in his truth. Let me give you this uh, quickly tonight before we go. I know this has been a, um, you know, I, I like just preaching like I did this morning, but this is, this is where we are in this study, and it's, it's needful. Franklin Logsdon was a respected evangelical pastor, popular Bible conference speaker, he pastored Moody Memorial Church in Chicago from 1950 to 52. He'd had several other pastorates as well. He authored a number of popular books and commentaries published by Zondervan. And uh, I won't uh, go into a lot of detail about his life. In the 1950s, he was invited by a businessman friend, Franklin Dewey Lockman, to prepare a feasibility study which led to the production of the New American Standard Version. He also helped interview some of the men who served as translators for this version. He wrote the foreword, which appears in the NASV. Uh, following is his testimony. Uh, he wrote a letter to uh, his good friend, Mr. Cecil Carter. This letter is dated June 9, 1977. Here's what happened. After the New American Standard came out, a great champion for this old King James Bible, David Otis Fuller, who was a good friend of Logston, 
began to write to him and show him the problems with the new versions and why he'd made a mistake in turning away from the King James Bible. And because Fuller approached him as a friend and as a brother and as a gentleman, Logsdon read his letters, examined his, his arguments and objections. Logsdon wrote this, June 9, 1977, My dear brother Carter, your letter of June 2nd has just reached me, and since I will be leaving in a few hours for a long northern itinerary, I will be unable to write you in any detail. As an honorary member of the Lockman Foundation, producers of the Amplified New Testament and the New American Standard, I was invited to California back in the 50s to do a feasibility on utilizing the copyright of the 1901, which was loose as a fumbled football. I was delighted and went. When it was decided to proceed with the new revised publication, I assisted Mr. Lockman in interviewing a few of the men who served as translators. What was finally used as the forward was taken from the feasibility report written before the actual work had begun. Apart from this, I had little to do with, with its production. Incidentally, you cannot get a list of the names of the translators. It is forbidden. But I received uh, number seven of the deluxe copies, but I did not for years even look inside it. It was too cumbersome to carry with me on the road. When questions began to reach me, at first I was quite offended. However, in attempting to answer, I began to sense that something was not right about the New American Standard. Upon investigation, I wrote my very dear friend, Mr. Lockman, explaining that I was forced to renounce all attachment to the New American Standard version. Even if I had the time to more definitely deal with the matter in this communication, I could not add much to what Dr. Fuller has in his books, copies of which you possess. I can affirm that the project was produced by thoroughly sincere men who had the best of intentions. The product, however, is grievous to my heart and helps to complicate matters in these already troublous times. God bless you as you press the battle. You know what he said? I worked on the thing and I never even took the time to find out what we were doing. And when I did later go back and look at what we produced, I realized we'd made a terrible mistake and I want you to no longer associate me with that work. Now, this is what he said. This is Logsdon from the New American Standard Version Committee. He said, I won't give you the whole detail. He said, the English Revised Version, the committee was controlled by Unitarians who did not believe in the deity of Christ. Two brilliant scholars, Dr. Horton and Dr. Westcott, held Rome to be superior to the New Testament church. He goes on to state that twice British royalty rejected the 1881 revision and refused to authorize it or approve of it. 1901 American Standard Version came out in 1901, and in 10 years it was bankrupt because nobody took it seriously and wouldn't buy it. New American Standard Version talks about how he was contacted, um, talks about the man, friend of his, Mr. Lockman, discovered the copyright, the American Standard had run out, figured it would be a good way to get some uh, money to, to redo it. He says, now listen to this, Dr. David Otis Fuller in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've known him for 35 years. 
And he would say, he'd call me Frank, I'd call him Duke. Frank, what about this? You had a part in it. What about this? What about that? At first I thought, now wait a minute, let's don't go overboard. Let's don't be too critical. You know how you justify yourself the last minute. But I finally got to the place where I said to my wife, and I'm in trouble. I can't refute these arguments. This version is wrong. It's terribly wrong. It's frightfully wrong. And what am I going to do about it? Well, I went through some real soul searching for about four months, and I sat down and wrote one of the most difficult letters of my life, I think. I wrote to my friend Dewey. I said, Dewey, I don't want to add to your problems. He'd lost his wife and had diabetes, but I can no longer ignore these criticisms I am hearing. I can't refute them. The only thing I can do, dear brother, I have a thing against you. I can witness at the judgment of Christ and before men, wherever I go, that you are 100% sincere. Uh, but uh, I guess nobody pointed out these things. I must, under God, renounce every attachment to the new American standard. I have a copy of this letter. I've shown it to some people. He said that was putting it mildly, but... He said, I'll write you in three weeks. I still love you. To me, you're going to be Franklin, my friend, throughout the course. And he said, I'll write you in three weeks. But he won't right now. Uh, he, he died. He has been buried. I tell you, dear people, somebody's going to have to stand. Listen, this man worked on the New American Standard Version, and Otis Fuller got him to recant and repent of that work. He said... I tell you, dear people, somebody is going to have to stand. If you must stand against everyone else, stand. But don't get obnoxious. Don't argue. Nothing will come of that. Nevertheless, that's where the New American stands in connection with the authorized version. Now, here's what he said. And I'll finish up with this. This is Logston. He said these are seven reasons why we must, or six reasons why we must stand against the new versions. Number one, they cause widespread confusion. Everywhere we go, people say, what do you think of this version? What do you think of that version? What do young people think when they hear all of that? But nobody knows where the Bible is. Be nice if he was running moody today, wouldn't it? Two, they discourage memorization. Who's going to memorize when each one has a different Bible and a different translation? Number three, they obviate the use of, concordance, of a concordance. Where are you going to find a concordance for the good news for modern man? And all these others, you aren't going to find one. We're going to have a concordance for everyone, and then you're going to have a lot of concordances, and then nobody's going to know what's up and what's down. Number four, they provide opportunity for perverting the truth. There are all these translations and versions, each one trying to get a little different slant from the others. They must make it different, because if it isn't different, why have a new version? So it makes a marvelous opportunity for the devil to slip in his perverting influence. Number five, these many translations make teaching of the Bible difficult. I'm finding that more and more as I go around the country. I mentioned this thing the other night. How could a mathematics professor teach a certain problem in class if the class had six, seven, or eight different textbooks? He couldn't do it. Why do we not have Bible teaching in our churches? It's impossible if we don't all have the same book. Number six, 
They elicit profitless argumentation. Because everywhere we go, they say this one is more accurate. Which one is more accurate? How do they know? This is not a reflection against those uh, saying this, because I would have done this a few years ago. In Christian Life magazine, I, I got this. My dear friend, Dr. George Sweeting, president of Moody, Moody Bible Institute, one of the sweetest, dearest men I've ever met. He's wonderfully named. He's starting today right down near my home at Southern Keswick. And if I'm back by the end of the week, I expect to see him and talk to him about these things. When he was asked for his recommendation of the New American Standard, he said, I like it because it reads freely. You can uh, read it for yourself. But then he suggested several others were good as well. George, my friend, which one? That's a Christian gentleman. Doesn't use dirty names, doesn't use dirty language. He doesn't say everybody disagrees with him as the devil. But he said, the devil sure used me. And the devil sure using some of my friends. And I renounce whatever part I ever had in it. Wish I hadn't done it. You know what he did? Second Timothy 3, he departed from those that had caused him to go in the wrong direction. And he returned to the Holy Scriptures that as a child made him wise unto salvation. Boys and girls, I hope you grow up and live for Jesus. hope you marry a man, marry a woman that will live for Jesus. And I hope when God gives you little babies, you'll sit them on your lap and you'll say, this book right here is the Word of God. And we were blessed to have a preacher that taught us it was so. And we're going to bless you by teaching you it's so. And I hope one day when they drop their, their babies off at your house, you'll put your grandbabies in your lap. And you'll say, this book right here is the Word of God. And once upon a time, I had a preacher taught me it was so. And I taught your mama it was so. I taught your daddy it was so. And they've taught you it's so. And whatever you do, you cling to this old book. Because it will make you wise unto salvation. Amen. I wouldn't trust a bunch of occultists as far as I can throw them. What could be any funnier than a guy with an NIV writing a pamphlet against Harry Potter? Think about it. Well, they got witches and warlocks and Harry Potter. Yeah, and you got an NIV put out by a man that believed in witches and warlocks. It's a strange world we live in. It's a strange world. You say, preacher, we normally get out 7.30. That's three and a half minutes from now. And I was done 15.412 this morning. Don't forget that. And I did that once about a month ago. I got 30 minutes credit here. Now, can I, can I just finish this off? By appealing one more time to 2 Timothy 3, the Bible says perilous times had come because men were lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You know why preachers don't know this? Because they spend more time golfing than they do studying. Because they spend more time fishing than they do studying. Because they spend more time playing than they do studying. You know why God's people don't know these things? Because they spend more time playing solitaire on the computer than they do studying the Word of God. Hey, I'm just telling you. Don't, don't go out of here and, be, and, and blame these guys. You could know these things. 
God's people can know these things. God's preachers could sure know these things if they just get busy about the important things. If I don't have time, well, pastor, let me suggest something to you. Cancel all your magazine subscriptions and your newspaper subscription and take that 15, 20 minutes a day and use it studying something to do you some good. Listen, I'm ready for a psychic revelation. Oh, no, we're not a cult. Ready for a word of knowledge? Okay, here's, here's what's coming. Something's going to get fouled up in the Middle East peace talks. Yeah, I mean, you just mark my words, it's going to happen. It'll be, it'll be in the newspaper. I see it coming. And wait, wait, wait. Some doctors are going to do a study and find out something causes cancer in rats. I see it coming. You know, I bet, I bet if, I bet if, if you took a rat and just let him starve to death, he'd have cancer when you cut him open. I think rats just get cancer. That's what I think. Poor things. They just, they just all got cancer. No matter what you inject them with, they end up with cancer. About the only ones that don't die of cancer are the ones eating out of the dumpster at McDonald's down there. They're, they're that big and 20 years old. <laughs> Listen, man, why waste time reading stuff that isn't going to help you when you could read something that'll do you some good? Just 15 minutes a day, you get through one of David Otis Fuller's books. 15 minutes a day, you get through one of Edward Hill's books. 15 minutes a day, you get through one page of Dean Burgeon. It's tough reading, man. But you could know. You can know these things if if you wanted to. And God help us not to be led astray, caught up in all this stuff. let's, Let's hang on to this old book. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your for Your Word. Father, we thank You for giving us grounds to have confidence in Your Word. And Father, we ask and pray that You deliver us from the influence of evil men, men that hated your chosen people, men that dabbled in occult practices, men that denied the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Our Father and our God, we ask and pray that you'd help us all the days of our life to be true to the simplicity of this holy scripture. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, anybody here got a new version? We need to have an altar call. All right, good night.